0: Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Monday, November 27, 2023. This episode is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English in the US for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Our guest for this episode is Stefan Korshak, who is Senior Defense Correspondent with the KF Post newspaper. Welcome, Stefan. How are you?
1: I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, and thank you for joining us today on Krenitzia. To start off with, it would be great if you can give our audience some information about your educational and professional background. Well,
1: um, I am a journalist with about 25 years of experience in the industry. I've worked in newspapers, wire, television, a bit less in radio. Uh, For the greater part of my career, I was bureau chief for uh, the German news agency, DPA, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, I've also spent some time... Uh, working uh, for the U.S. government in Afghanistan, and I spent uh, seven years working for the OSCE mission in uh, East Ukraine. I was stationed in the Mariupol sector, patrolled on both sides of the contact line there. Uh, I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm a native-born American, and I, uh, I have a bachelor's degree from George Washington University and an MA from Yale University. Stefan,
0: do you do you have Ukrainian roots?
1: Uh yes, some, but not as much as my name would give you to think under normal circumstances. Um my father's side of the family uh came from uh Ukraine, but they were mixed. So we know that there were ethnic Ukrainians in our background, but we also know that there were ethnic Russians, Jews, and Moldovans, and we suspect also Roma, but we're not sure. Uh, They basically didn't have anything to do with any of each other in the old country, moved all of them to Chicago. And uh, that's the product of my father's side of the family. My mother's side of the family uh, came to the what became the United States in the uh, late 1600s, Scots, Presbyterians and some English and Irish, too.
0: Uh, Interesting family background. So you've been a journalist for more than 25 years. Have you always focused on the defense area? No, I have
1: not. I uh, forgot to mention that I uh, uh, spent, what was it, close to five years, four and a half years in the U.S. military uh, back during the Cold War. Um, Military subjects are kind of a hobby of mine, and uh, it's uh, one of the themes that a general uh, coverage reporter uh, has to deal with when he's working in this region anyway so it's kind of been mm, a, a big facet of what I do and of course is uh, the military conflict with Russia intensified over the years then more and more uh, that sort of uh, side of what I was doing in writing became more important but um, I'll tell anybody that you know yeah okay I can do the the military reporting, the combat stuff. I have done it. You know, so it's like I don't know if I'm completely competent, but at least I try. But if you leave leave me to my own devices, you ask me what I would like to do. What I would like to do is write stories for National Geographic. Unfortunately I don't hire people to do that anymore. But I would, you know, most prefer to go out and write about nature and animals and wildlife.
0: But, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. So why did you decide to become a correspondent in Ukraine? And I'm assuming that you're currently living there.
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, My uh, we make a home here in Ukraine, my family, although they are all refugees or grown up now, my kids, our kids. Um, I uh, was a language student, not primarily, but uh, that was a minor, if you will, of uh, the Russian language uh, way back in the old days. And so um, when I finished my education, it sort of worked out that I uh, started working in a, with the first the energy industry and the transportation industry. Um, and I eventually made my way to journalism here. And um, once here, then the language sort of drove my access to, you know, information here. Um, I've worked outside of the former Soviet space. I have come to when I got here, I, my Russian wasn't so great, and my new Ukrainian was non existent. Now my Russian, I would say, is fairly competent, and my Ukrainian is improving very quickly. And uh, but I've you know worked in the Caucasus, and uh, I don't know in Romania and you know Bulgaria, places like that. But by and large, my focus uh, geographically has been the former Soviet space.
0: And were you writing for the KF Post before Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022? And if so, no, no, what topics no, did you I, cover?
1: I wasn't, and that wasn't the plan. Way, way, way back in the 1990s, I worked for Kiev Post uh, kind of as, uh, well, as a sideline. I was getting my feet wet in journalism. I didn't know if I wanted to do it. And they were just starting up way back then. But I went on to other things, and, you know, we parted on terrific terms and i went on and worked and did what i did and then um and as i mentioned uh, my uh, our family makes a home in kiev and uh we uh the plan was uh i was going to retire i mean this year that was the plan and i was already looking okay well i don't know maybe i'll, I'll get a retirement home in belize or i don't know summer's nice in ukraine maybe here And then the war started. And uh, from a personal point of view, that meant that my wonderful wife, who was earning income, she had to leave because of war. We had uh, our daughter, who was of school age. uh, She had to be taken care of. So she left my son, our son, I should say, is grown up. So he's in the United States. And uh, we So the family got scattered to the four winds. Uh, we have uh, other sources of income besides just being uh, where I was by my work. Um, but uh, those sources of income took a substantial hit, so uh, I found that it was it would be a good idea to find work to generate income, and also because I had been a reporter for so long, uh, for without question, there was a certain part of, well, there's this huge war story coming i'm a guy who's uh covered ukraine extensively and i spent the last seven years of my life working for osce monitoring the unofficial war the non-war the ceasefire that wasn't a ceasefire in uh east ukraine so there's some sense to my getting back into journalism and helping out with the war effort if you will and uh that's what brought me back to work but again had there been a peace had the russians not attacked i my, i would be retired right now maybe you know going and taking pictures of birds somewhere i don't know
0: what was it like covering the early days of the russian invasion of ukraine and did you ever cover the invasion from the front lines
1: um okay uh it was uh scary it was terrifying uh, there was an air of um, uh, unru- uh, the uh, of unrealism about it. How uh, there was a great deal of no, come on, this really can't be happening. Surely the people who were making the decisions, uh, in Moscow cannot be this stupid. And uh, it uh, took a while to sink in. I mean, and I, at the start of the war, was a guy, um, who had. You know, I would seen artillery strikes. I knew what uh, you know, small arms fire sounded like. I had a reasonably good idea for a civilian how military attacks go, what roads they might go down or not. So uh, by some standards, I was probably better prepared than some. But it was just days and days of just walking around almost numb, like, no, this can't be happening. Um, I That was a pretty common reaction, I would say. And uh, yeah, I did some reporting from the front lines. Um I was taking care of uh my family and trying to get them out of here. We got them out of here. That was that was the top priority, but um I was able to go to the northern part of the city around your pen and kind of at a distance observe what was going on there. And our family um left the center of Kiev, I think, on the second or third day of the war, and we decided to go uh, try and be safe with uh, relatives, my wife's family, um, on the west side of Kiev in the countryside. And that village and that locality turned out to be dead smack dab in the path of uh, the Russian armored thrust that was going to bypass and encircle Kiev uh, from the west so we saw the reinforcements coming we had uh not every day but you know there were instances where artillery was passing over our head in either direction um the there were times we saw things shot down by the uh, ukrainian air defense forces and uh you know so by any measure uh it was absolutely the front line there during those early days uh, we were probably about 15 kilometers uh, behind the the, very, the fighting line. But like I say, there was explosives going our head in either direction. But I wouldn't want to uh, describe it as a unique experience that only grizzled war correspondents have. There were like dozens of villages full of people experiencing exactly the same thing. It's just happened where I happen to be.
0: So at this point, what is morale like for the frontline troops in Ukraine?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I guess overall sort of the common thread is we got no choice. We're just going to have to stick this out. Uh, it's like, um, you know, they're uh, are they're, They they're in a marathon. They know it's going to hurt. They know they don't really know when it's going to end uh there's a lot of unpleasantness up ahead but they don't have any options i mean it's not like they're they they, they can quit i mean it's not like they can just say okay well we'll surrender to the, to the russians just you know let them have part of ukraine let's just abandon those people to the russians i mean it's just that that's just a not 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 happening and um that's probably overall the most common sort of like baseline attitude uh if you would come into contact with troops who, by dint of their specialty, or by uh, you know, by they 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 have better commanders or whatever, and they feel like they're killing Russians and they're surviving. The morale of those guys is great. So it's like it's a it's a it's almost uh, humorous. I mean, you can talk to any number of mid-grade officers and, oh, you know, it's tough and the Russians outnumber us and they have more firepower. And then you go wind up talking to, you know, a bunch of these, like some dudes who operate these like little strike drones and they're going out and dropping, you know, grenades on the heads of Russians daily. And uh, they are just inevitably and always in a good mood. You know, they'll, they'll say, we're killing them, you know, give us more grenades, we'll kill more Russians. And I think that there's sort of a psychological aspect to it that if you feel like you're doing something that can contribute towards a positive outcome, that just inevitably um, improves your morale. Uh, there are guys who uh, get put into fighting positions, and uh, you know, infantrymen on the front lines, and they, you know, they basically sit there and get pounded. And, uh, you know, they watch their buddies get hit. They watch some people die. You know, somebody's got to sit in the position. Somebody's got to, like, protect the line. But that means that their lot is that they're going to take houses. And those guys, you talk to them and, um, you know, it's either gallows humor or just just really, you know, what am I doing here? Or my life sucks. And, I, you know, it's like, okay, I can't run away, but it just is awful that I'm here so uh you know it's like depends on who you talk to i guess is sort of the very short answer to
0: that question i would say stefan what role has technology played in the war and specifically what kinds of defense technology has ukraine been using to its advantage
1: well i touched on probably the the key one and that is drones um right now uh There's a revolution in warfare going on. I don't think that people uh, outside of Ukraine or even far from the line understand the degree to which these small hobby drones operated by, you know, guys who like to fly drones. A lot of them sort of were computer geeks in civilian life or something like that. And um, they are capable, the Ukrainians in a small sector of the front, of putting like hundreds of these things into the air over the course of 24 hours. They've got sourcing going. They've got fun. And it's all crowdfunded. I mean, this, the, 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 whole, the amazing part about it is this from a official point of view, it doesn't happen. I mean, the Ukrainian military, you know, they operate cannon. They have big drones. And this is sort of separate with that. It's uh, if, if you have one of these little hobby drones, it's sort of, I don't know, spots a Russian tank. It's not overly common that the Rid of that tank gets passed over to the uh, to the Ukrainian artillery, so the Ukrainian artillery can hit it. Far more common is that they send another drone carrying an anti-tank grenade, and uh, that will attack the Russian tank. And if the first one doesn't work, they send another one. And I read a stat; all of this stuff is guesswork, so you know, take this uh, you know with a grain of salt. That something like thirty percent of all the Russian military equipment destroyed in battle, you know, these days, last couple of months is these bitty drones. And, uh, you know, that's like they're, they're, nothing has ever been like that in warfare. Um, I can tell you that on the front line, the idea that you can't hide behind a hill is absolutely there. There's never, ever been something like that. Well, okay. There've been observation airplanes, but the idea that persistent observation by the enemy can be there 24-7 no matter where you are. The only question is how far the drone can reach. That's absolutely no, and people are still adapting to that. They're still trying to figure out how to do it. I'd say that another aspect of the technology is that um, the uh, Ukrainians have gotten very good using um, data sharing, uh, just uh, civilian, basically, software. Excuse me, too. Um, Provide targeting data to the various uh, artillery and missile systems that they have, and um, they can spot a target and hit it um, with speeds that they shouldn't be able to do, given the kind of military that they have and the degree of training it has. I mean, the American military figures it's doing pretty well if it can put you know spot a target and put you know, metal on that target in like two or three minutes. That's but that's the Americans. The Ukrainians can. If they're on their game, they can do it in like five or six minutes and they shouldn't be able to do it that fast. And the reason is, is that the um, their their fire control networks are just saturated with data sharing um, software. And the real limitation is the amount of artillery ammunition available, um, which is not which is worth pointing out. Although this is not this is kind of like opposite, uh, an opposite answer. You talk about new technologies. Well, one of the very oldest technologies, um, something shot out of a cannon, an artillery shell. I mean, shell shortages, which are just critical here. I mean, it's sometimes, but it's supply chain issues. So sometimes there'll be shells in the chain, but at a certain point in the battlefield, there won't be shells, but there are macro issues and micro issues. But the problem of delivering enough cannon shells to, the battlefield i mean that dates back to world war one that that is a challenge that militaries have struggled with for more than a century and it's here with us right now so you know mixed of old mix of old and new
0: unfortunately we're just about out of time but i did want to ask you one last question are you concerned that the eu countries and the u.s are losing interest in supporting ukraine Yeah, I
1: I would say I'm concerned in the sense that um, were they to do so in a significant way, that would be disastrous for me personally, for Ukraine generally, and in my opinion, for the security of the European continent Uh, there. This is the most rank and uh, obvious military aggression since Hitler and Germany in World War Two and nation states either respond to that in an adequate manner or not so certainly it's a very serious issue that you cannot just say well everything will be okay and responsibly that's all you do that being said from my perspective here it really does seem like um, military resistance to russia and giving the ukrainians the tools to do that, to resist militarily, that's become institutionalized across not not in every European nation, and not not even in America, not to uh, the, a, a full to full, full extent, but deeply enough so that uh, backing off on that, I think, is, is extremely unlikely. Um, if you look at the, the way that the aid volumes have gone, we are now at a time where literally. The value of aid provided Ukraine from Europe is greater than from the United States. So you can already sort of start a discussion about who's leading the aid not. That, I think, is most likely going to go on long term because the institutions have taken that approach and they are unlikely to reverse that approach anytime soon. That's my view.
0: Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsya.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for giving me the time. You have a great day.
0: I have been speaking with Stefan Korshak, who is the senior defense correspondent with the Cave Post newspaper published in Cave, Ukraine. This is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Koninitsya, the Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now.